Uh, before we um, get into our lesson today, I do just want to remind you that tomorrow is June 19th, uh, also known as Juneteenth. That is a national holiday here in the United States that celebrates the end of slavery in the United States. And this is a, a unique holiday because this, uh, this, uh, this holiday commemorates slavery ending in the U.S. But slavery had ended in the South in, on January 1st. 1863. But as the Civil War raged on, and then when it finally ended, news of this uh, of the end of slavery didn't reach Texas until June 19, 1865. And that's where this celebration comes from, Juneteenth. Uh, but 1865, that was two months after the Civil War had already ended, and almost a year and a half after it had become illegal to own a human being in the United States. So this is a very significant celebration. This day has a lot of meaning to me personally. I see it because it's very symbolic of the ongoing struggle that African Americans have had in this country. And not just African Americans, but also all people of color have had in this country for freedom. Um, even though slavery has been illegal now in this country for 160 years, there's still an ongoing battle for people to find, uh, to, to find and feel the equality that they already have, right? Evil people through the decades have manipulated the rules and the laws and looked for loopholes to, to keep people from feeling the freedom that they have, whether it's preventing them from voting, whether it's preventing them from owning a business or owning property throughout the years. And so this particular holiday is a symbol that though the law says one thing, it's taken a long time for people to feel the freedom that they have. And so this is a very special holiday, and I think it's important that we talk about that. And I want to say this, I'm especially proud of my, sorry, I'm especially proud of my brothers and sisters of color in the church. And that's because you not only live in an atmosphere that often leaves you feeling suffocated at times, but you also have the added burden of righteousness on top of that, because you've decided to be a Christian. And in doing so, you've decided to limit your options of what you're going to do. You've decided not to return evil for evil. You've decided to respond in a righteous way. You've decided to be holy people. And I applaud you. And I admire you. And I have the deepest respect for you. And so to you I say, Happy Juneteenth. My dad told me a story. He told me a story about uh, years ago when he was a minister for a small little white church in southern Mississippi. This is back in the early 1970s. And he told me a story about how the congregation had gathered to, to evangelize. And one of their tools for evangelizing, and maybe you've done this before, was what's called door knocking. And door knocking is exactly what it sounds like. People go out and they knock yeah, on doors trying to spread the gospel. And this little small white church in southern Mississippi in the early 1970s gathered and they were going to go door knocking and their plan was to go door knocking in specific white neighborhoods and so my dad who was the minister 
stood up and he said, hey, he said, you know, the Bible teaches that the gospel is for everybody and not just particular people. So I would say that we should go to other neighbors, neighborhoods than just white neighborhoods. And he said, we should go to this particular neighborhood in our community that's not white, that's a black neighborhood. And he told me this story as he stood up in front of these people. And I, and I said, Dad, how were you, you feeling when you said that? And he said, I was scared. You know, you got to understand, this is the early 70s in southern Mississippi. This is just a few years after three civil rights activists were murdered in, in Mississippi for, for helping uh, African-Americans with voting. And two of those three that were killed were white people. So it was a time that it was dangerous to stand up wh- no matter who you were. And so my dad was nervous of that, but he was also nervous because, uh, you know, he just feared rejection from his community, you know, from his church. He feared that if he stood up and said something, that people would, uh, would reject him. And I said, well, how did it go? And he said, you know what? They listened. And they said, okay, let's do it. And that's what they did. They went out into a community that was completely different from theirs to share the gospel. And that's a small, little, tiny thing that a person can do. But that's kind of the point. That's the point, especially to my Caucasian brothers and sisters. Let me say, we can do something. We can stand up and say something. Even though you might be afraid of how people might take it, you can do something to show your love and your respect and help everybody be included. So with that, I say happy Juneteenth. That wasn't my sermon. Today, that's tomorrow. Today is June 18th. It's Father's Day. Father's Day is really, it's a great day for so many people as we stop and we we look around and we admire our fathers. But as we said a couple weeks ago on Mother's Day, Father's Day can also be a difficult day for people as well because not everybody has had a great experience with their father. Maybe you've lost your father. Uh, Maybe, you know, maybe maybe your, your relationship with your dad was very difficult or it wasn't something that you admired. You know, it, it, so we have to remember when we're talking about Father's Day that it's not always a happy day for everybody. I think we have to be sensitive to that. But that's why we thank God for his church. Because in the church, God provides men in our lives that can be like fathers to us. And though nobody ever really will take the place of your actual father, God does provide men who may be older in your life who you look up to and you love and you care about, and those become like fathers to you. So today, I would encourage you that not only do we honor our our, our physical fathers, but maybe take some time today, at some point, if you can, reach out to someone who's been like a spiritual father to you and express your love and thank God and thank them for who they have been in your life. But you know, what's even greater than all of that is that the ultimate father in our life is God. Now, I know that, I know again, when we talk about God being a, a great father, for some people, that's a disconnect. You know, they go, yeah, I understand that intellectually, but, you know, 
you know, I just, my, you know, they, they may, maybe they had a rough relationship with their father. And so they superimposed that. It's hard for them to envision something different than what they saw physically. And so sometimes that's not even an easy thing for people to do, is to see God as the great father that he is. And so that's what we're going to do a little bit this morning. I'm going to read to you from Luke chapter 15. In Luke chapter 15, we're going to talk about God as our father and see what the Bible says. And so for just a little bit, all right, I'd like you to suspend all your thoughts of what a good father looks like. You may have had a great model in your life of a good father. You may have had a lousy model in your life of what a father is. But whatever your situation is, just for this time now, as we read the scriptures together, I would encourage you to just suspend that. Set set that aside for a moment and let the Bible sculpt your idea of what a good father looks like. A lot of us, we have preconceived ideas of what God looks like. We, We think we know. And so, and, and, and if we're not careful, we end up putting God in a little box, right? And we're like, oh, I know how God is. He's right over here in this little corner. And so as we read this passage together, I want to encourage you to let your mind be, be sculpted by what the scripture says. I'm going to read to you this parable, often referred to as the parable of the prodigal son or the parable of the lost son. It's kind of a misnomer, though, to, to, to refer to this parable about the son, even though there is a son involved. There's actually two sons involved. If you look at it closely, it's not really a parable about a prodigal son. The prodigal son does terrible things. So this is not a template or a lesson for you and me on how to go out and do terrible things. We're often pretty good at that already. We don't really need a lot of instruction in that. What's really key in the story I'm about to read you in this parable you've probably heard a million times is not the sons, although they are characters, it's the father. It's how the father responds to the son. So let's read this together. And again, please, for a moment, just for this service here, set aside your preconceived ideas of what God looks like and let the scriptures here just guide you and mold your thinking. Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 11. It says, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had and set off for a distant country and he squandered his wealth in wild living. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. It says, but while I was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. The son said to the father, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robes and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. 
For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. They began to celebrate. Verse 25, meanwhile, the older son, this is the other son, the older son was in the field. When he come near the house, he heard the music and the dancing. So he called one of the servants and he asked him what was going on. What was going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has, has, he has him back safe and sound. Verse 28 says, the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you have never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. Verse 31, my son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He, is, he was lost and is found. This is a classic parable of Jesus. This parable about the father and the sons. And there's so many things that we can gain from this. So many insights, so many lessons that we can learn. But let me just again turn our attention to the dad in this, to the father. Because the father, of course, in this story represents whom? God. Yes, of course. So as we're looking at the father in this story, we're really looking at Jesus revealing characteristics of God to us. So let's take a look at a couple of them. Number one, what do we learn about God, our Father? And again, suspend what you think and just let the scriptures guide you for a moment. Well, what do we learn about God? First, we learn this. God gives. God gives. Go back to verse 11, or verse 12, actually. It says, the younger one, this is the younger son, said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So the father did. He divided his property between them. What do we learn about God? Well, we learn very, very simply that the father gives. He gives. Now, as a parent, I don't know about you, but I think I probably would have responded differently if my kid came up and said something like that to me. Dad, give me what I have coming to me. I'd be like, all right. You asked for me. Right? But that's me, an earthly father. We're not looking at me, and we're not looking at you. We're not looking at your dad or my dad. We're looking at our heavenly dad. And what is the first thing that the dad does in this story? The father gives. And this is a theme throughout the scriptures. God being a giver. God is one who gives. For example, God gives faith in Romans chapter 12, verse 3. God gives encouragement and endurance, Romans chapter 15, verse 5. God gives honor, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 24. God gives the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians, 12, uh, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 12. 2 Corinthians 5, 5. Romans 5, 5. Galatians 3, 5. 1 Thessalonians 4, 8. God gives victory, 1 Corinthians 15, 57. God gives grace, 
1 Corinthians 1 4, 2 Corinthians 8 1, 2 Corinthians 9 14, Ephesians 1 6, Ephesians 3 7. God gives help. Philippians chapter 1 verse 19. God gives Himself. Ephesians 5 verse 25, 1 Timothy 2 verse 6, Titus 2 verse 14. God gives the light of knowledge. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6. God gives strength. Philippians 4.13, 1 Timothy 1.12. God gives wisdom. I know I'm going fast, but that's the point here. God gives wisdom. James chapter 1, verse 5. 2 Peter 3, verse 15. God gives authority. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 10. God gives life to everything. 1 Timothy 6, verse 13. God gave his one and only son. John 3, verse 16. God gives us the ministry of reconciliation, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 18. God gives us everything we need for life and godliness, 2 Peter 1, 3. Do you get the point? Yes. <laughs> the point is that our Father gives. God is a giver. So what is your picture of God? Is it one of an old, grumpy, stingy, gray-haired, gray-beard old man in the sky? Right? That's like, ah, oh, you again with your prayers and your requests. Is that the image you have of God? Well, it's wrong. That's not God. God is not stingy. He's not grumpy. He's not distant. He's not cold or selfish. God is a giver. Listen, nobody wants to re make requests of grumpy, stingy old people, do they? No, nobody likes that. When we moved from North Carolina to Long Island about 11 years ago, I kept my cell phone number from North Carolina. And we lived in Long Island for two years, and then we eventually moved to Rockland County. And at that point, after we'd been, been here for two years, I went ahead and changed my cell phone number. It's the cell phone number I have now that most of you have, except for a select few that I was keeping it from. But um, no, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, that's a joke. But not everybody got the news about my old cell phone number. <laughs> and so people will occasionally, because it's in their phone, call my old number. Well, apparently the, the cell phone service, they've already given my number away to a new person. Oh, no. And this person does not like me anymore. I, I don't know if they ever like me. Because this person, this person is regularly gets texts and calls and requests. And this person has become grumpy and angry and upset because of all the, all the calls that they get. In fact, I think the, 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 last, the latest victim was Sam, right? Sam told me that he called, and some guy answered, and he's like, hey, is Phil there? And the guy's like, tell Phil, stop it, stop. And I said, Sam, please don't ever give him my actual number, because I don't ever, I don't ever want it. But I'm just saying, nobody wants to make requests of grumpy, stingy people. God is not that. God is a giver. He's just jealous because you're so popular. <laughs> yes, thank you very much. He's like, how did Phil have so many friends? <laughs> Call him and tell him. And he lives that. And he, yeah, yeah, don't give up, definitely don't give up my address. Amen. The point is, is God is a giver. When we make requests to God, when we call God, when we get on our, our knees to pray to God, this is not God's response to us all at all. In fact, we see throughout the Bible that God gives. You know, uh, so much time 
uh, I think we spend a lot of time, at least I do, and maybe, maybe you do too, I, I think about what I don't have in my life. And this is why gratitude is so powerful in our lives. Because when we are grateful, when we, when we, we make ourselves remember God, it also forces us to remember the fact that God is a giver. That God gives to us, even whether we recognize it or not. There are things that God gives to us every single day that we just take for granted. But what does God do? He keeps giving them. He keeps giving them to us. Should we stop asking God for things? No. But according to Philippians 4 verse 6, when we ask, we should just do it with thanksgiving, with gratitude. Giving is very powerful, isn't it? I mean, uh, John was just mentioning how as collectively as the New York City Church of Christ, to date, we have in in one week, we have collected over $750,000 towards our special contribution. That's our, our, that is the New York City Church of Christ. I mean, that's just the first week. And so I know many of you probably are still giving. You can still do that online, of course. But in New Jersey, we have collected over 149,000 of that. I mean, that's amazing, isn't it? I mean, that's powerful when you think about people giving, giving to something, giving financially to a cause where, uh, for people to help people that you probably will never meet. I mean, it's all just full of faith. Giving is inspiring. Romans 8, 32. It says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how much will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Again, just emphasizing that God gives. Let's go back to our our parable here. What else do we see about our Father? Our Heavenly Father. Not only does He give, But we also see that God runs. God gives and God runs. Wait, what? Verse 20. This is when the young man has come to his senses and he's returning home. It says, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. This is God. What an amazing image. The father is running to his son. The fa- Again, if it were me, I might handle it differently. I might sit back and watch and say, let's see how, let, let's see what's, what this attitude is like. I see him coming down the road, but let's make him sweat it out a little bit. But that's not what we see here. What we see here is the dad sees him and runs to him. The father runs to his son, prompted by his compassion. The father goes to him, and all of that leads to a big party afterwards. I mean, this is our heavenly father. This is our spiritual father. God gives, and God runs. He runs to us. I think to really appreciate our salvation and to really appreciate the reconciliation that we have with God, you got to let God run to you you got to let God run to it. It's not about your talent. And it's not about your strength and your awesomeness. Although you have lots of talent, lots of strength, and you are awesome. But it's not about that. It's not about you getting to God. It's about God getting to you. Romans 9 verse 16, it says, It does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. This whole thing is packaged. This whole thing rests 
not on your desire or your effort, but it rests on God's mercy. Does that mean we are exempt of effort? Of course not. No, we make every effort. Of course we do. But that's not what it all rests upon. It rests upon God's effort for us. In fact, here's a fun little trivia. Uh, The Greek word in Luke 15 that's translated run, you know, the father runs, is the same word that's translated effort in Romans 9, what I just read to you. So what it's literally saying is it's not your running, it's God's running. That's what the Bible's teaching. It's not your running to God that saves you, it's his running to us. Where in your life do you just need to let God be God? <laughs> Where in your life do you need to surrender yourself and be humbled and just go, you know what, God, you are God and I am not. First John 4, verse 16, it says, And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. We get this backwards often. We say, and we know and rely on our love for God. That's not what it says. That's not what it says. We know. We don't just know it, but we rely on it. We, we stake our, I mean, we rest. We, we, our hope is on it. You know, our, our, our life rests on the fact that God has love for us. That's it. That's it. This is our heavenly father. God gives. God runs. And then the last little image here I want to pull out of this passage is that God pleads. God pleads. Look back in verse 28 of Luke 15. It says the older brother, remember the older brother now, He's heard about all this. The older brother became angry. That was his response. He became angry about all the compassion that was shown somebody else. He became angry. And he refused to go in. So the father said, well, fine. Just let him sit outside for a while and think about it. Is that what the father said? No. So his father went out and pleaded with him. Wow. Again, for a moment, suspend your image of what you think a good father looks like and let God and his word just define it for you for a moment. Here's a good father, a father who goes out. I mean, here's a young man who has zero redeeming qualities in this story. I mean, maybe he was a good guy, you know, maybe he did other things that we don't know about. But in this story, there's nothing good about him, nothing. In fact, even at the end, he's still, the story ends and he's still outside. We don't, we don't know what happens, right? There's no zero redeeming quality about this guy. But the dad still goes out and pleads with him. It's because God pleads. God is a God who pleads. I sat in a courtroom one time. There's a brother in, in Long Island who is a judge. And we were having lunch and, uh, one time. And, and I got there a little early to his office. So, so he let me come and sit in his courtroom. And he was presiding over a case and they brought a guy in and I just sat in the back and there was really nobody there except I think the guy and his lawyer and the judge who's a brother. And it was just very, it was just very humbling to watch a man like plead for his case uh, before a judge. You know, you're, you're, you're sitting before a judge, a person of authority who has the right to make decisions for him and this man just sat and pleaded and negotiated and bargained 
And, you know, please judge, please, you know, give me a chance. I didn't mean that, you know. And I, I was just waiting to have lunch with, with the brother, but I was sitting there watching it. And there's something just so uncomfortable about that to watch that. Because then I think it's uncomfortable to think that God would be doing the pleading. The God who is the ultimate authority, who is the definition of authority, what he says is just right. What he does is just love. What he, what he thinks is righteousness. It's just difficult to, to see him being the one in the pleading role. Him being the one that says, you know, please, please come in. Please come be a part of this. Please find salvation. Please come on. Come to the party. You know, is it be, you know, because when you think of pleading, you think of desperation. It's hard to picture God that way. Is it because that God is afraid, though? Or is it because God is insecure? Or is it because God is weak? No, no and no. It's just because God is desperate for you. He's desperate for you. And he's willing to plead with us. So, are you responding to God's pleas in your life? As God is desiring to connect with you, are you resisting? Are you turning away? Are you pushing back? Or are you responding to the Father who pleads with you? You know, we get it backwards so often. Again, we think we're the ones pleading with God. And there's certainly times when I've been praying and I've been pleading with God. And that's right and that's good. But the truth is, it's God who's pleading with us. 1 John 4, verse 10, it says, this is love. Ready? Here it is. Ready? This is love. Not, starts out with the word not. Here's what it's not. Not that we love God. So here's love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Wow. That's a God who pleads. This father, this ultimate father, he gives, he runs, and he pleads. This is exactly, these are words right out of the Bible that describe and define God. Our father is amazing. He gives, he runs, he pleads. And I would encourage you to to continue to study the Bible, to look and let the Bible define your image of God and not just maybe your history or your thoughts or your experiences, but really let go of your preconceived ideas and let the Bible really, really, really sculpt. And this is not just a one-time thing. It's something you, gotta, you, you do regularly because those preconceived ideas are deep. <laughs> they run deep into our soul. But the point of all of this is that you are a source of immense joy for God. That's the point. You are a source of immense joy for God. And that's why he gives. That's why he runs. And that's why he pleads. And nothing, nothing demonstrated this more than Jesus giving himself for us on the cross. In a moment, we are going to take this communion together. And as we do, we're going to remember his body and his blood that were both broken and and shed for us. But there's nothing that was a 
personification of the principles we just looked at than Jesus willingly, voluntarily giving himself for us. For us collectively, yes, but for you individually as well. So let's take a time, some time. We're going to have a little music here. We'll have just some quiet time to, to, uh, with the music to reflect and to really think about how amazing God is. And let's let our hearts be moved by his love, the love of the true Father. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful for your word. We're so grateful for how it adjusts, changes us. We pray that we will be humble to your love, that we will let it move us. We will let it sculpt us. We will let it teach us to be like you as well. God, right now, as we just take time to think about you, let our hearts be soft. Help us to get rid of distractions. Help us just to really remember and always remember how amazingly kind and generous you were to give your son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.